It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. And welcome to Moment of Truth. I am your host, David Moses, and you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And of course, you could also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app. If you download that app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM, and uh, you could listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And uh, once again, it might come in handy for someone like our uh, our guest uh, here on Moment of Truth today. Uh, she is actually calling in from the city of New York. So we would like to very much welcome Amy Shirup, uh, Vership to the show. Uh, Amy, once again, uh, we appreciate you taking the time to call in. Uh, you are the travel editor for the New York Times, and we appreciate your uh, your time uh, as you call in to talk about some interesting places that uh, that uh, the New York uh, Times has uh, has said is the uh, great places to visit, including a couple uh, here in Canada. Correct. Yes, uh, we put together a list every year of the fifty-two places to go, uh, and this year we put Canada on quite a bit. Actually, uh, in twenty nineteen, Calgary was on. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this year we put on uh, two places in Canada, uh, Haida Gwaii and then uh, Churchill. Okay. And and we're going to we're going to, to uh, find out a little bit more about that. But first, if you don't mind me asking, when you look at trying to to uh, you know pick these places, can can we go over a little bit of the criteria? What are you looking for when you you try to recommend places for people? Um, so the biggest thing for us is that it's a you know, it's a 52 places to go in a particular year, right? So mm. it's not necessarily 52 places uh, that are always, you know, at the top of the list. It's 52 places where there is something new or different or interesting happening that is really um, compelling people to go there this year. Um, so that's one of the major criteria that we're looking at. Um, as we put the list together, you know, we get recommendations from people who write from us, from Times correspondents, uh, both uh, domestically here and then all over the world, uh, from, you know, travel industry people, from people we know who travel a lot. You know, we get a lot of recommendations, and then we kind of go through them and sift them and try and think about, okay, why this place this year? Uh, that's interesting. I'm sure you get, as you mentioned, uh, a ton of recommendations from people all over the globe. Um, so, can you? Can, how difficult does it get when you start to whittle that number down? Well, you know, it, it, there's a fair amount of arguing and discussion <laughs> and that kind of stuff between us here on the the Times Travel Desk about what should be in. And eventually, what we usually do is we come up with a list that a bit more than 52, and then we kind of let it sit for a little while and try and think about, you know, uh, the the options that we have. One of the things we also want to try and do is make sure that we get some geographic spread, Mm. that we're going to all parts of the world, that we're not too clustered in any one part, um, and and make sure that we look at everything on a map and say, okay, here's the world. Are we giving people a, a picture of a broad enough uh, spread of places to go. Um, so, you know, it never quite gets to fisticuffs, but it does get heated. <laughs> Glad to hear that. Uh, 
Um, the other thing I was I was wondering about is uh, when you're when you're recommending these these places or looking at them, uh, is it very often that the, the the team gets to go and travel to these places to check them out for, firsthand and and see if the recommendations are worthy of getting on the list? Yeah, uh, well, we don't we, we don't get to go to them ahead of time. <laughs> the past couple of years. We have had, um, but, you know, one thing is that many of the people who are recommending them have actually been to these places. Mm. Um, so, uh, because they are spread out across the world. Excuse me, for the past two years, we have had uh, what was called the 52 Places Traveler, and that person has gone to every place on the list after we published it. Actually, this year, um, we did not go to one place, which was Iran, because mm. we had trouble getting visas uh, to get in uh, as a journalist. So he actually went to 51. Mm. Um, we're not doing that again this year, but we will be going to many of these places. We will be sending writers to many of them to report back on them. Since we have told you how wonderful they are, we want to tell you more detail about them. Mm. Um, as you mentioned, people are sending you information. If someone out there is listening and, and, and thinks they have a destination they would like you to possibly look at for consideration, uh, how do they go about doing that? Uh, well, we are on Twitter. They could send us a recommendation on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. It's just at Amy Vership. Um, we, uh, they could send me an email. Uh, my email address is just my last name, which is Vershup, V as in Victor, I-R-S-H-U-P, at nytimes.com. I can't promise to get back to everybody, <laughs> but uh, if you have a great idea for a place that we should go in, so this would be for 2021, keep in mind, since we've already picked the list, um, let me hear about it. Mm. Um, so are you looking also, when you say because it's the year, uh, and any given year these places are being recommended, uh, I'm guessing sometimes there are perhaps anniversary dates or things that are happening throughout that year that make the reason, uh, as part of the reason that you're, you're picking these places. Absolutely. So um, our number one place this year actually is Washington, D.C., um, and we picked that um, mostly because it is the 100th anniversary of um, women achieving suffrage in the United States, mm. um, and we wanted to mark that occasion. And it's also... You know, as anybody who's watching uh, U.S. politics, it's also an election year, mm. um, a contentious election year, <laughs> and we wanted to make the point that even amid that, you know, a possible disagreement, um, that D.C. is the capital of our entire country, of all its people, and a fascinating city in its own right. Yeah, I had the pleasure of being there uh, quite some time ago, and uh, from what I remember of it, it's quite striking, of course, beautiful city. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful city. It also has a really large um, uh, immigrant community. Mm. It has tons of different kinds of food, both high-end food and, uh, you know, more ethnic places, So it's a, a and all most of the museums are free, so it's pretty mm. a pretty great place to go. Yeah. Um, so, Amy, you've, you've picked a couple of places uh, that include uh, Canadian destinations this year, as you mentioned off the top of the show, Haida Gwaii and uh, Churchill, Manitoba. Yes. So, uh, um, yeah, let's pick, let's start with Churchill. How did Churchill manage to, to meet the criteria to get on the list? So the big thing in Churchill is that the train that had been uh, out of service for I believe more than a year, maybe even longer than that, 
um, has been restored mm-hmm. so that people can take the train up to Churchill and see uh, polar bears, see the northern lights. Um, the Arctic regions and actually the Antarctic polar regions in general are uh, have become very, very popular places for people to go. There's a lot of uh, northern lights tourism now. A lot of it is based in uh, Scandinavia. But here um, in the Western Hemisphere, um, in the Americas, we actually have our own uh, opportunities to view Northern Lights, including up in um, Churchill. Um, And the idea that you could actually get there by train as opposed to having to fly was very appealing. Um, One of the, as we put our list together, um, one of the things that we really found ourselves focusing on this year was the issue of sustainability um, and what climate, uh, what travel's contribution to climate change is, and I think it's a thing we all have to talk about and think about very seriously, and being able to go by train to have this incredible experience um, seemed like a, a great thing. And, you know, uh, it, traveling by train is a very a, a very lovely way to go. It's very relaxing. You, you can move around. It's not like you're in the confines of a car uh, you, you, you have all of that availability. Plus, you have, a, in most ca- cases, once you're outside of the urban areas, you have beautiful, beautiful uh, landscape, especially traveling north. And depending on the time of year, uh, of course, if it's near the fall, you're going to get beautiful colors uh, that are going to just uh, just be another added uh, bonus for that trip. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so that, it seems like a great place to go. Now the other thing you mentioned, of course, uh, is the is the sustainability, and I, I wanted to ask you about this. You know, we've seen uh, uh, we've seen some some uh, some some reports about traveling, especially where uh, people want to get those selfies, and sometimes they 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 venture into areas that are uh, you know they're, they're ecologically sensitive, and we're we're almost doing more damage than than good by trying to. Uh, uh, take these selfies, and and uh, and even though it's beautiful, uh, we're we're kind of trampling, and we're we're doing some de- destructive things. So I know that that's part of what you were talking about in terms of that uh, environment and 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 sustainability that you're referring to. How do we? How do from your perspective, are you seeing this? And and how? What are you recommending to people in regard to those kind of things? Um, absolutely. I mean, and that's been a big issue for us that we talk about, and and I think one of the. Um, I think one of the most important things for us all to think about is is our respect for the places that we go um, and to not think of them as merely a backdrop mm. for, uh, you know, a big photograph of our head in the middle of the story or our hands doing hard hands or whatever. Um, not that, you know, not that people shouldn't do that if they want to do it, but also that they need to be really conscious. This is... The thing I'm thinking about for 2020 really is the idea of conscious travel Mm. and thinking about where you're going, thinking about the choices that you're making and how they impact the places that you're visiting, how you can uh, walk more lightly on the earth, Um, you know, from very simple things like, you know, bring that uh, reusable water bottle with you everywhere you go, Um, right? You know, let's cut down on the plastic. Let's um, make sure that if there's a beautiful field, you know, you don't trample it. You stay on the path and you take your picture from the side. Um, Just really being respectful of the destinations that we're visiting. Mm -hmm. Nicely said. Uh, Of course, the other place that you you mentioned that's on the list this year uh, for 2020 is Haida Gwaii. 
uh, right. a, a very beautiful part of British Columbia uh, in its own right. Right. And and actually, the, the Haida First Nations people have really taken a lead here and are limiting the number of people who can um, visit parts of uh, Haida Gwaii and uh, making sure that that is done respectfully. They're taking people out um, in they're running their own um, expeditions, these zodiac tours with whale watching. Um, and but they'll only take say twelve people at a time into uh, an old Haida village uh, to look at that and look at the cedar longhouses, that kind of thing, and um, really making sure that they are, don't get what we call over-touristed. Yeah, nicely, and that, and good for them, and and that comes back to uh, education as well. And uh, good for them in, ter- in terms of taking that lead uh, to be uh, proactive in that area. And just before we go any further, I just want to let everyone know that you're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. My guest is Amy Vership. She is the travel editor for the New York Times, and she's on the line uh, with us from New York City. And we're talking about uh, the uh, the 52 locations, and more specifically, the, the two Canadian locations that they... I have recommended for 2020 as places to go and visit. Now, we were just talking about Haida Gwaii. Amy, uh, uh, what what did you guys see that uh, stuck out to you about Haida Gwaii for this year? Well, it's, you know, one, it's incredible beauty, um, which I think is probably not as well known as other parts of British Columbia um, to our readers. Um, and then, two, the, the thing that, because one of the um, themes of our list really this year was sustainability. You know, as you put the list together, you often find that like sort of themes will emerge. Um, and this year it was really sustainability and history. Um, and so for us, for Haida Gwaii, it was really this attempt that the Haida First Nations people were making to make sure that uh, any tourism to their area would be sustainable and would be done in such a way that it would maintain the area. Mm. Now, Haida Gwaii uh, being a, it's, uh, an island, of course, you have to take a ferry or, or some kind of uh, water water transportation to get there. Uh, that makes me think uh, about your other choices that you have made in the past, if you don't mind uh, just exploring this. Um, is there something that comes to mind for you in terms of not only the destination, but the actual... Uh, process of getting there that illuminated the idea of wow, what a trip this would make. Um, well, I mean, this year the place that we went, that our fifty-two places traveler went, that was probably the farthest away, the most difficult to get to, was the Falkland Islands mm. um, and Las Malvinas, um, and. Um, he actually, there's only a once-a-week flight into um, the Falklands. And actually, I'll tell you, one of the things that we often are are talking about when we do these 52 places is that there's some change coming that will make a place easier to get to than it has ever been, mm-hmm. so that maybe it will be opening up. So the Falklands, when we picked our list, uh, there was on the horizon that they were going to be adding flights into the Falklands, so there was going to be get going to get easier to get there. Well, that didn't really happen in time. Um, so <laughs> there was only one flight a week uh, into the Falklands, and um, not 
because our traveler did anything wrong himself, but because there was a screw-up at the airport, he actually missed a connecting flight that would have gotten him mm. onto a flight for the Falcons. And so we had to, he had to, at the last minute, totally scramble his trip, go somewhere else, wait a week, and then go back to the Falcons. Now, the Falklands, uh, is that South Pacific? Or, or, uh, my memory escapes me about where it actually is located. But it's the, the tip of uh, South America. Okay. So, so uh, travel-wise, what kind of time period are we looking at in terms of flights? Uh, and how long does it take to get there? And I go, I know that's a, you know, depending on if you're on the East Coast, West Coast, I guess, and, and those kind of things. But say from New York, how long would it take yeah. to get there? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm not even sure how long it would take uh, to get here from New York. You can't, you can't fly direct from mm. New York, so you would have to fly into uh, Argentina and probably and then down from there. Or um, the, the jumping off point is, I believe, Ushaya, which is in, in southern Argentina. Mm. Um, but we're talk- he ended up actually spending 40 hours in the air to get mm. there because he missed his flight and, had, and went north and then came back down south in order to get to um, to uh, the Falklands. Wow, that's that's a trip. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, now, Amy, I'd like to ask you another question. It's uh, maybe a little off-topic, but but uh, for, for someone out there listening and, and thinks that, wow, what a great job you have, um, how does someone uh, end up uh, being able to get uh, in, in the, the kind of position that you are doing as a, as a travel editor and, and being able to, to look at these kind of things for, for the New York Times or, or any other uh, newspaper or, or, you know, um, uh, just, just uh, television, radio, whatever it might be? Uh, well, you know, I, my path was not straight to it, and I think that's probably the, tr- the case for many people. I actually have been at the Times for a long time, for about 17 years, and my uh, most immediate uh, job before this was actually in the metro section. So I like to say that I traded metro for the world. Metro covers New York (laughs) City. Um, And um, I had done travel. I had written about travel and edited about travel previously um, and then gone on and done some other things. Um, And I am a avid traveler myself. I've been, uh, you know, to many places. I would love to go more. Um, so uh, one of the things that I think is really interesting about the New York Times is that it's a place where you can go from one thing to another, from subjects that might not seem connected. For example, I don't know if, how many people read. Uh, our, we have a columnist, Frank Bruni, who writes a lot about um politics. He also writes about education. He's on, on, in our opinion section. And he used to be the food critic for the paper. Mm-hmm. So you can go from one thing to another, and it's really taking the same set of skills, mm-hmm. which are really journalistic skills around reporting and storytelling and uh, editing and bringing those to different subjects. Mm. Great. Well, thanks for, for sharing that with us. Um, now, uh, let's, let's look back a little bit at the list and, uh, let's bring it back home for you a little bit. We talked about Washington DC as one of the places listed. And I think you said that was the top uh, place on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. there are other places that I believe are included like uh, Austin. Yep. Uh, Austin, the capital of Texas is on there. Another great food and music city. 
where the scene is really happening. Austin has been, you know, a magnet for people for a long time, but we felt like uh, this year it was better than ever um, and was worthy of being on the list. Okay, Richmond, Virginia. Yes, so Richmond is kind of, uh, you know, people don't think that much about it, um, but it actually has become a big art town. And one of the things that was really interesting for us in Richmond is uh, it had been a place where there were a lot of um, Confederate monuments. Mm. Um, And just recently they have put in place there a monumental statue by an an artist named Kahinda Wiley, um, which kind of takes the form of a, you know, a, a, um, a Confederate statue and, but it has on it a uh, a black man who is riding the horse in this very um, mm. uh, victorious kind of way. Mm. Um, so it's really challenging. It's called uh, Rumors of War, mm. uh, and it's, it's challenging the narrative of heroism mm. um, in the South. And so we felt that was really what put it on the list this year. Mm. Also, another good food city. <laughs> right. We like food. <laughs> Everybody loves good food and loves to try different things in that in that regard. That's for sure. It's part of exactly. uh, part of the experience. Okay, Grand Isle, yep. Louisiana. Grand Isle is, you know, as I said, um, sustainability is one of the issues that we are thinking about. Grand Isle is um, in the uh, Mississippi Delta. It actually has been losing. Um, land at a very rapid rate and may soon be inundated. It's a place of incredible beauty with waterways um, and uh, a, a stopping off place for migrating birds. Mm. So it's a beautiful place to get really close to nature and it's very, very um, threatened. Ah, right. Okay. Uh, Colorado Springs. Colorado Springs um, is opening a new museum that is dedicated to the Paralympics and Special Olympics. Um, Colorado Springs is a place that um, Olympic athletes train in the United States. Um, It's the Olympic and Paralympic Museum, um, which will open in April. So that's really exciting. Um, It also uh, has um, great outdoor activities that you can do, zip lining, climbing, uh, skiing, hiking, everything. So it's a, a great outdoor city. Great. Sounds wonderful. Um, now, uh, let's let's take it outside of the States for a moment. What comes to mind when you think of other areas uh, around the globe that you've looked at for this year uh, in terms that you'd like to recommend to people that might be on the list? Um, well, we picked a couple places in Africa. Um, we picked um, Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, which is uh, rapid. Ethiopia has become a big, big uh, tourism draw. Um, it has opened up, and um, they are they've put in a new train line, um, and they are trying to do more sustainable travel, and more and more people are going to Ethiopia. Um, we put in Tokyo because they are having the Olympic Games this year. It's a great city to begin with, mm. and the Olympics are making it even more so. Um, we put in, in, going back to Africa, we put in the tiny country of Lesotho, which is completely surrounded by South Africa, has not really been on anyone's tourist list, but has wonderful trekking. Uh, it's a mountainous, um, country and quite beautiful. Mm. Um, 
We also put in Uganda, which is a stunningly beautiful um, country and has uh, guerrilla trekking and is doing a really great job of um, uh, kind of limiting, again, trying to keep the trekking to uh, be sustainable, to not impact the land too much. They limit the number of people who can go out and see the gorillas on any particular day. Um, so that's um, another one that's on our list. Mm. Um, let's see, where else? Um, also on the sustainable list, we have uh, Sabah in Malaysia, which is in, uh, on the island of Borneo. And um, this, we're sending people there because uh, they're, they're tearing down, cutting down the palm forest there to make palm oil. And if people go and say, you know, no, this is a beautiful place, we want to come here and there's enough tourism industry, perhaps we can slow down that destruction right. um, and keep the natural beauty. Nicely said. Uh, Amy, we're quickly running out of time. I, I want to ask you about, uh, if you know at this point, uh, what are you looking at for uh, uh, possible uh, ideas for next year? Not necessarily uh, cities, but... but what are, I'm a little early for that. Okay, no worries. <laughs> Okay. Give, give us time. We're still getting over-publishing this year's list. <laughs> okay. No worries. Uh, well, uh, again, uh, Amy, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show, and certainly I uh, really like the idea of how you, you went about uh, picking the, 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 the ideas of how you, you look at the topics you're looking at. Uh, in particular, this year you looked at the sustainability and uh, and, and uh, history around uh, things that you're looking at. And, of course, a couple of those places you picked uh, for the uh, 2020 New York Times 52 Best Places to Visit is uh, Haida Gwaii out in British Columbia and uh, Churchill, Manitoba. Um, right, and if people want to see the whole list, just come look for 52 places to go on the New York Times website and uh, they'll be able to get the whole list for themselves. Sounds great. I also like the other things that you uh, mentioned about as we look to that sustainability and look to the the environment to try to protect that environment while we are visiting and being conscious, as you mentioned, about being a conscious traveler and uh, walk lightly on the earth uh, so that we can protect this beautiful planet that we have and keep it for not only ourselves, but for our future generations. Absolutely. And uh, once again, Amy, it's been a pleasure to have you on. I, I look forward to uh, continuing the discussion next year when you ha have another 252 uh, places we can uh, talk about. Oh. All right, sounds good. I'll talk to you then. Okay, take care. That okay, is Amy Vership. She is the travel editor for the New York Times, and she was speaking to us from New York City on the line. Uh, great, uh, great to speaking with her and being able to share uh, not only some great travel tips, but also some uh, great recommendations in terms of even how, as you, you may have heard there, uh, some of the places that are being recommended are also taking some, uh, some proactive ways of trying to make sure that we protect the places we're visiting. Uh, people in uh, Ida Gwaii are doing that uh, and uh, making sure that they're limiting how many people are coming to certain areas, uh, and it's great to hear all that. Uh, it's been great to have this portion of uh, Moment of Truth coming to you with a guest from New York City, but we're going to move on and uh, speak with our next guest right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto, and of course, you could also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app. If you download that app and type in 106.5 ELMNT-FM or 
105.7 ELMNTFM. And uh, just follow the directions. You could be listening on your device of choice uh, anywhere in Canada, um, uh, right across the country. And as I say, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'd like to welcome my next guest uh, on the show. And she is on the line. And her name is Arsene Kanjian. And she uh, is here to talk about a film called I Am Not Alone. And uh, Arsene, it's a pleasure to have you uh, join us. Uh, you know, the one thing I didn't ask is where are you calling from uh, today? Uh, today I'm uh, in Toronto, actually. So, uh, uh, but I just got back from Cambodia. So I'm in a bit of a uh, huge jet lag situation. <laughs> Oh, uh, well, I'm sorry to hear that, uh, but I hope your, your trip was fruitful for whatever your, uh, uh, your reason for traveling very was. Very much so, and very much in the field of a lot of the subjects that have been of interest to me uh, in my life, uh, in terms of my uh, work as an activist and uh, uh, history of genocides and, uh, in general, history of identities and uh, uh, sort of... Uh, notion of diversity and so on. So it was a very, very fruitful trip. Thank you. Well, you know, uh, you're mentioning uh, activism and uh, being an actress. I have you listed as an actress, and you're featured in this uh, the festival opening night of I Am Not Alone. Uh, that also is a documentary, and uh, I might add that it's a very, very uh, uh, compelling documentary, um, a fascinating uh, film, um, about uh, about activism and about human rights and uh, and, and Armenia is it, such a such a uh, you know a, a wonderful but film about a struggle and uh, you know I was uh, I was very taken by it and I, I very much appreciate the fact that we have you on the line to talk about this I'm just not sure where we start with it. Um, <laughs> Actually, that is a very good point where we start with it. I think the film uh, does justice uh, in terms of where it starts. Mm. But uh, uh, on the day of the projection, we, uh, during the Q&A, uh, I will have a chance to uh, give the larger context of the film, uh, meaning uh, what happens in the film started a couple of years previously, uh, given the political climate in the country since its independence uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So, uh, in a way, uh, I think the, the beauty of the film is that it captures uh, 25 or, or more than 25 years later uh, the state of Armenia as an independent country and uh, the uh, social, political uh, issues that were lingering since its independence uh, without any uh, a positive uh, evolution. And uh, the film starts with the of this one parliamentarian who was also a journalist and who would say uh, enough is enough in the name of the people and brings this change from within Armenia with the support of the people of Armenia uh, against a regime, the Republican gov- uh, uh, Party's uh, ruling for basically since independence. 
and uh, he sort of mobilizes uh, completely the, uh, the, the the quiet voice and very suppressed voice of the people to bring the Velvet Revolution into existence. Uh, and uh, it's a very touching, uh, indeed, it's a very touching uh, story because it happens today in our midst. I mean, uh, the revolution in Armenia uh, started in 1918 uh, effectively, but actually it was something that was being prepared uh, in the psyche of the people and the people who wanted to change uh, the circumstances uh, way before that. So uh, it, it's uh, it's good to know that something positive actually happened just a couple of years ago in a small country in the Caucasus uh, called Armenia, who has a very charged history of oppression by empires, a history of genocide, a history of uh, a, a unfortunate uh, antagonistic relationship with its neighbors, uh, and uh, and suddenly an internal movement created an openness and a uh, and a hope for democracy and social justice and uh, a relief from oppressive regime uh, uh, in terms of what people were going through in Armenia since its independence. So um, I had the privilege to be a witness of this. Uh, I have to say almost inadvertently, uh, starting in 2016. Uh, but um, uh, when we see the film, uh, we do understand that uh, these uh, changes uh, they're not happening alone. Uh, they're happening, of course, with the voice and the resilience and the strength of the people who are living these uh, 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 oppressive uh, lives uh, under oppressive regimes, but that also we can, from the outside, uh, from different countries, uh, with our different uh, uh, values that we can uh, support them in, in terms of uh, our, our work. And in this case, for instance, Human Rights Watch is a very important player because in 2016, as a diasporan Armenian, when I got arrested uh, because of demonstrations that the police and the government were very strongly fighting against against the people, when I got arrested as a diasporan Armenian, meaning not having the nationality of Armenia per se, but being by birth an Armenian, uh, I had to call upon Human Rights Watch to come into the country and uh, investigate what was going on in the absence of, uh, for instance, uh, freedom uh, for reporters to be reporting to the rest of the world what was going on in this small country between uh, Azerbaijan, Turkey, Iran, and uh, Georgia. So a landlocked country uh, uh, that uh, the world was not really much paying attention to uh, at that point. And when I uh, called Human Rights Watch, they were located at that point in, in uh, their main office was in Tbilisi, and they sent their experts from Tbilisi to come and do research uh, investigating all parts of uh, what was going on with the uh, demonstrations and the upheaval. 
uh, and after taking it through a little bit of time uh, to uh, really investigate, uh, they really came out with uh, reports that the actual journalists themselves were having very hard time to communicate to the rest of the world. So, uh, <clears throat> in a way, uh, it's very uh, amazing that this film, I'm Not Alone, uh, is being uh, shown uh, at the uh, Human Rights uh, Festival uh, at Haddock's uh, uh, Roger, uh, Ted Rogers Cinema because it is that kind of uh, uh, film that we can uh, understand not only as a documentary but also as world events uh, really uh, in concrete terms uh, in terms of what happened during the Velvet Revolution in Armenia eventually in 2018. Nicely said, and what an introduction uh, you give the film there for uh, creating some interest. And as you, you just pointed out, uh, that it will be shown at the Human Rights uh, Watch Film Festival and uh, between uh, January 30th and February uh, 4th. So uh, it, it is, uh, you know, recommend for people that are interested in trying to find out more. It is, once again, called I Am Not Alone. And I'm going to say one of the things uh, that you, you mentioned, there's so many things, in fact. Uh, you, you talked about the, this, uh, you know, what happens in the film. You talked about hope and world events. Um, now, the person you, you alluded to at the very beginning is the person that the story follows, and uh, Nigol Pashingen is, uh, yes. I believe, his name. And, uh, you know, what I really found fascinating about how the story unfolded is that it, 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 it has so much wonderful footage that captures every single step of this along the way, and that it, it also has, you know, a side that you, didn't, you wouldn't necessarily think you were going to get um, and that is, of course, the, from the, the, the ruling power, the Republican power, uh, and, and the, the, the sitting prime minister at the time, you actually get some great footage and some interviews with, with many of the people inside the power that were, that were going through this at the time. And, and I thought that was really wonderful uh, to see because you get to see a, a side, uh, you get to see all different sides of this, um, and as you say, it, it's, a, it's a movie that ultimately has a hopeful end for people to see uh, as well. Uh, yes, I, I mean, uh, Garino Vanessian, who's the director uh, of the film, has done an amazing job in getting access uh, to the Republican Party uh, representatives and even the man who, uh, who was for two terms the president of Armenia and who mm -hmm. had changed the in order to be uh, able to become prime minister uh, and get the powers of the president uh, uh, through uh, a constitutional change uh, voting system a year before uh, uh, to have access to him. And uh, that really brings further weight to what Miguel Pashinyan was trying to do and who he was trying to fight in the name of the people to, to bring really this, uh, this uh, connection between a government and its people, because the government is meant to govern its people. And in the case of Serge Sarkisian and his Republican Party, there was a huge gap between what the government of oligarchs were doing and what the people were going through uh, every day, with a lot of uh, people leaving the country. Over a million actually left the country during the previous uh, regime. 
So uh, it is really great what Garim has been able to do. I had the privilege to be, uh, although we don't see that much in the film, uh, the, those passages, but I spent one week literally because I was called upon by uh, Nigel Pashinyan as he was walking from the city of Gumri uh, towards Yerevan as part of his uh, protest to join him as a diasporan uh, Armenian in order to bring the diaspora into this history as well. So there is a witnessing about what was going on. So I spent that one week with him going through different towns, uh, villages, uh, very remote parts of the countries where he was being uh, uh, received as the savior by the people because he was really trying to connect with each and everyone. And it was, I have to say, as a Canadian uh, <clears throat> who has been uh, uh, used to see campaigns, I was amazed to see this kind of incredible human campaign one-on-one. -on -one, uh, and I was terrified in a way that something uh, 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 really horrifying could happen. But Miguel Pashino was so convinced of, of his message and what uh, the changes he was going to bring in the country should the people support him that uh, there, there, there was this uh, incredible, it was almost a joyful uh, experience uh, to, to, to see what people can do when they are determined to bring change and they don't really address fear as a, as a way of keeping away. The, the worst enemy, I think, uh, for change, towards change, is fear. And I think the Velvet Revolution was an example where fear was completely excluded from the process. And Nikol Pashinyan, through his charisma, through his very well thought out uh, engagement uh, in civil uh, and, and uh, uh, political work, gave to people that hope of courage, that hope of not fearing any longer uh, from like it would be the case from previous regime of uh, imprisonment or uh, having to sh uh, be uh, quiet so they don't lose their jobs and all kinds of uh, absolute uh, unacceptable uh, abuse of power through the regime, through the police system and so on. So uh, to witness that uh, was uh, quite an experience. And uh, once again, I think uh, uh, Garino Vanessian has brought a lot of that uh, energy into the film where we can see all the protagonists the uh, good guys and the bad guys in that sense, within a quite homogeneous culture, ultimately, uh, who is dealing with its own history. And, uh, and I think that's the power of the film, uh, both for Armenians to have it as, as a record of their own history, but also for all kinds of cultures who can uh, see something that can pertain to their own reality in that sense, especially as also as a Canadian diasporan Armenian uh, who identifies with uh, a lot of my uh, fellow citizens who come from different parts of the world and they have uh, uh, 
very difficult histories in their uh, original home countries where they were born or where their ancestors come from. I think this film is a very interesting example in Canada uh, to be watching. And um, uh, also the one thing I would like to add is that to see it in the context uh, of the Human Rights Watch Festival, the film was also shown at TIFF, of course, and it won the public's uh, the audience prize. But to show it at TIFF is an extra um, uh, support about the veracity of the story because uh, uh, the same way Human Rights Watch does extensive research before they uh, propose their or they uh, publish their reports about any situation in any country, also the film festival committee does research about the events that are uh, relayed in all the films that are going to be shown at the festival. So there is very good grounds, solid grounds about the facts that these movies are uh, uh, proposing and the portraits of characters, uh, participants, uh, they're all reliable uh, uh, events that the uh, film is showing and the the Human Rights Watch Festival has really uh, put its stamp on it in that sense. Okay, I'd just like to jump in and let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM, and this is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and uh, my guest is Arsene Kanjigan, and she is on the line. Uh, we're talking about a film called I Am Not Alone. Uh, it is a documentary about uh, Armenia. It is a really good film uh, that uh, touches on so many levels, uh, struggle of of human rights, uh, and you know, you know the other thing, Arsene. I think that that, that it also brings out is uh, is 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 just um, uh, how, how there you, there is there is um, something to hang on to there. That 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 oh, I know, and history. That's the history of of Armenia that's in there. Because it does go back uh, to some specific dates, March 1st and also um, uh, April 24th of 1915. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that is, that those two dates, especially um, uh, when there's a, a, a discussion uh, with, the, um, w- with Serge, the, the Republican Party leader and I believe the Prime Minister at the time, and he, he mentions that. Uh, to uh, to Nigol uh, Pashing and who this is the story is following and that was kind of like uh, uh, a mistake on his part to say that because it it, it is about a very uh, a very devastating time in, in Armenian history. Well, March first was a uh, is a very uh, devastating uh, time uh, for uh, a really traumatic time for uh, Armenians, uh, Armenians in Armenia and Armenians abroad as well. But March first was uh, really uh, uh, the uh, quintessential, I think, uh, motivation of Nigel uh, Pashinyan uh, to uh, to create an environment where uh, this kind of uh, killings by the uh, internal forces of the country, by the police force and uh, the uh, the abuse of the army in the way 
of the uh, president, the outgoing president, uh, uh, Kocharian, Robert Kocharian, who was pass- passing the baton to Serge Sarkisian, that uh, the killings of uh, innocent demonstrators against the fraudulent um, elections uh, would never happen again. I think Bill Pashinyan was very, very affected by these killings and these abuses of human rights. And as a journalist, he really um, uh, kept this subject alive because no justice was brought to this subject uh, after the, that, which happened in 2008. So, um, and uh, everything was being like uh, sort of thrown under the carpet, and no truth was coming out uh, through the justice system, and so on. So, when really in a very remarkably uh, crazy, unexpected way, the uh, ex-president uh, Serge Sarkisian reminded in his conversation, which lasted two minutes basically, with uh, trying to negotiate with Miguel Pashinyan. Do you remember what happened March first? That was was the beginning of, of his and his regime's complete downfall because he was, in a way, as if threatening once again Armenia uh, and Armenian citizens that, uh, you know, th- th- that kind of uh, atrocious uh, um, intestinal, uh, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, events to, 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 to kill the people or that, that there would be riots where people would die uh, through the regime force was uh, in, in a way being uh, sort of uh, brought forward again. And, and I think that that was, uh, that, that was the very uh, single element in that conversation that gave Nicole Pashinyan uh, just uh, an opportunity to say, here is the injustice that we are dealing with, and it has been uttered in the words of the very person who has been uh, part of the problem. Uh, and uh, therefore, uh, uh, um, you know, even uh, I think 48 hours later, uh, Serge Sarkisian, uh, the, uh, who was prime minister at that point, and he was two terms uh, ex uh, the, the the past president of armenia he resigned and nigol pashinyan became uh, de facto the prime minister um, of the country so um that conversation is the crux of the uh, turn of events, I think, uh, in Armenia. And uh, again, in a way, it's uh, really due to the uh, very uh, resilient uh, stubbornness of Nigol Pashinyan to say, I am not negotiating anything here. I just want you to resign from your position because it's not an official uh, uh, position for you to be in, but we should meet and talk. And that conversation uh, really uh, brought Armenia's uh, present history to, uh, to what it is today. You know, one of the things as you're speaking there that it reminds me of is throughout this process, the film does not start off in a very hopeful position with Miguel as he starts his march uh, yeah. with very, very few support uh, and and uh, some very quick thinking on his part throughout the, the process of this because there are several times when this could have fizzled and gone uh, away and, and it wouldn't have been successful. 
Um, even, even uh, you know, some at, at times when he was blocking buses and he was still getting protests from his own from people saying, "Hey, you, you know, I got to get to work and and why are you doing this? This is political action. Go do this somewhere else." And and there were just people in the streets that were that were um, that he was interrupting, but trying to to I guess uh, when when one plan failed, he was thinking on his feet and trying to come up with with other options. But I will add this. Um, you know, the one thing off the top of the show that you hear that he, he says is, I studied, uh, I studied Gandhi. Uh, yes. So that, all that peaceful, peaceful way of protesting, of bringing things forward. Um, it, it, you know, so you're never, he never does uh, want to escalate this into violence. He always wants to, to take this uh, forward in a, in a, pa- in a, uh, um, uh, a peaceful way. And um, uh, as, you, as you say... Um, you know, I, I think it's interesting because you, you mentioned protagonists in this as well, and, and you get to see all sides. And I think that was very interesting because the language that uh, some, of, some, of the, some of the people use, I think, gives you an insight into uh, their thinking. And what I mean by that is uh, you mentioned uh, Serge uh, Sargassian, and he, he's uh, as the, the, the prime minister uh, of the Republican Party and the president, the former president. And... Um, at one point in the conversation, when he's talking to the camera, uh, he he, he uh, talks about the chess, the game of chess, and and also he says something else in there that I thought was really interesting about not waking sleeping volcanoes. I, I just thought those were very interesting terms that he uses uh, to describe. And the frame of mind, it, 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 it really gives you a sense of how uh, this person, Serge uh, Sarkisian uh, versus Pashinyan, are really thinking uh, as well. And I think what uh, Nigol uh, sort of emphasized was this was not about him. It wasn't about, it was about, it was about Armenia. It was about the people, and the people had to get involved. And even after he was arrested, uh, people, it, it was great to see other people pick up the, the role. And, in, and specifically, uh, it was wonderful to see, I'm, I believe it was his wife that yes. uh, picked up the megaphone and said, okay, the men have been arrested. Uh, now we have to step up. It's time for the women to step up. And yes. um, Anna Hagopian, his wife, uh, indeed, yes. Uh, who is actually a journalist and uh, herself and uh, the editor uh, of a, a newspaper in, in Armenia, who was at this point, of course, uh, she had to, to uh, focus on her duties, and she doesn't act per se uh, as the editor of the newspaper, but uh, she has been all along uh, uh, with him, uh, with, not only with this movement, but over the years with all the uh, uh, civil work, uh, civic work and the political work that he had done. Mm. Uh, it's, uh, I would like to mention something really interesting from my uh, observation point of view, is that when in 2017, after my arrest uh, I, uh, in Armenia, in Yerevan, uh, my brief arrest, I have to say, uh, I, was, um, uh, I, I came out and I realized that the diaspora had something to say about the situation and the political uh, um, reality of Armenia that we had the right to express our opinions, even though if we were, we were not citizens of the country, but we were observers and we were uh, historically, uh, in terms of our ancestors, part of the same uh, 
uh, people and uh, and the nation, uh, if not the state, of course. So uh, uh, with Serge Tankian, who's uh, one of the people, not, not the president, Serge Tankian from System of a Down, the the, uh, the lead singer who's in the film as well, um, uh, we uh, we created a, a manifesto in terms of uh, the diaspora having to uh, be involved in the lack of rule of law in, in the country, the police violence, uh, the economic situation, and we created a manifesto, and part of the manifesto was to attend uh, during the change of the constitution uh, elections uh, and the votes as independent observers. So that year was 2017, and when we went there, people were incredibly hopeless. So they're saying there will never be change in this country. It's impossible. The only change that can happen is if someone from the outside comes and uh, uh, and relieves us from this corrupt system, from this oligarchic uh, violent exploitation of the people uh, and the poverty in the country. So there was this mentality that the savior was go- going to come from the outside. And what we were saying, even the, uh, it, it, in terms of our presence and supporting as diasporans uh, as much as possible fair elections by observing all around the country uh, the elections, we were saying, no, this change has to come from within. I personally was very, very clear about the situation that we can support, we can, uh, we can follow what's going on, we can participate in different various ways uh, uh, to bring attention especially to not to say you are you are not alone we are watching you you are being perceived uh, by the diaspora or the international community or human rights watch in that respect but the change has to come from within and i think a year after those elections that's what Miguel Pashinyan did and that's the power that he gave to the young people especially the women all these ostracized uh, uh, groups and communities, uh, the students, and he managed even to bring the the, the police force uh, through this message of peace and uh, complete, uh, uh, honest, transparent uh, 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 addressing of what was going on politically, economically, uh, socially in the country. He even got the police force to, to support him so that uh, the violence that could have been expected could not take place, and it did not take place uh, to the same extent as two years before or in 2008, March 1st, and so on. So, uh, Arsene, sorry, Arsene, uh, we're, we're going to have to we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, we're mm-hmm. out of time, but uh, I just want to say, from your your description right there, I think that's a wonderful uh, way for people to be engaged. At least I hope to go and see this film. It is called "I Am Not Alone." And, um, you, you know, uh, it really does. Uh, you, you, I don't think that Hollywood could have written a better script. And this is a documentary about about how this has unfolded. And you'll see it in, in front of your eyes, how it happens. It, it's quite uh, it's quite uh, uh, powerful. So I recommend everybody try and see this film. It is called once again, I am not alone. I've been speaking uh, with uh, my guest. Arsene Kanjigan, and she is uh, who's been kind enough to join us on the line to talk about this. You can see the film at the Hot Docs uh, Ted Rogers Cinema from January 30th to the 4th at the Human Rights Watch Film Festival. 
Uh, and Arsene, once again, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And I just want to say that the, the screenings are free and the other films are also very worthy of uh, being seen. So please do see as many as you can. But, uh, of course, please do see. I'm not alone. Uh, I'm very proud of uh, that film of Garino Van Nessian. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for all the comments and sharing uh uh, so enthusiastically about uh, about this film, and I hope we have uh, have engaged people and and triggered some excitement about uh, coming to see it. Thank you. And that is uh, Arsene Kanjigan. She is an actress. She's also an activist, and she was joining us on the line to talk about "I Am Not Alone." Uh, it's a film that is on at the Human Rights Watch Film Festival uh, from uh, January thirtieth to February fourth. And as you just heard her say, uh, it's free, and it is a documentary about Armenia. It's, it's fascinating. you got to see it. So I'm uh, going to leave it there. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. Until then, I say onigiyah.